Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School, where drawing, painting, and sculpture are studied in depth, debated energetically, and created with passion. The school's full-time programs, a two-year MFA degree, and a three-year certificate program focus on experimental learning and sustained studio courses. Both programs invite students to focus on painting and sculpture with drawing as an integral foundation for all creative production. Each semester begins with a two-week drawing or sculpture marathon to generate momentum and expands one's range of strategies for future studio work. Since its inception, the New York Studio School has emphasized rigorous learning through direct experience. Applications for fall 2020 are due January 15, 2020. Apply online today at nyss.org or schedule a tour to learn more by emailing info at nyss.org. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors. I've been using Golden for over 20 years, and it's hands down the best paint and mediums you can get. Here and there, I've tried other colors in the studio, and nothing compares to Golden. The range of colors, the paint quality, the opacity, the diverse and malleable mediums, it's just way above the rest. On top of their amazing paints, they're an employee-owned company that holds a commitment to corporate social responsibility that gives back to the community. Did you know they have mural arts programs involving community and artist support? They donate to victims of displacement to create messages using paint. They donate to veterans and service members using artist therapy. And they donate to college studio arts programs. Try some golden acrylics or their Williamsburg oils, their many mediums or core watercolors. You'll love them. You can find them in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Adam Parker Smith was born in Arcata, California in 1978 and is based in Brooklyn, New York. He received his BA from the University of California, Santa Cruz and his MFA from the Tyler School of Art. Adam attended the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture and the Atlantic Center for the Arts. His work has been shown widely in the U.S. and internationally at the Hole Gallery, Honor Fraser in L.A., Derek Eller in New York, the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art in Colorado, Evergold in San Francisco, Zadoom Gallery in Luxembourg, the Delaware Center of Contemporary Art, the Berkshire Museum in Massachusetts, the Soap Factory in Minneapolis, Painted Bride in Philly, Parisian Laundry in Montreal, and TSST Gallery in Hong Kong. Adam's work has been written about in the New York Times, Art in America, Beautiful Decay, The Village Voice, Fiber Arts, Art Forum, Art World, White Wall Magazine, and New York Post. I stopped over Adam's studio just a couple blocks from my own for a talk about drawing battles, the Suzuki method, moving from painting to sculpture, stolen art, and much more. Here's our conversation. It's professional. Right, yeah, this is... But yeah. have, you, have you recorded any music ever? No. I mean, not since high school. That counts. On the tape recorder. Oh, yeah. yeah. Did you did you grow up playing music? Kind of, yeah, I did. I, I did. I did Suzuki. The Suzuki method? Yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, it's sort of, that was it. And so I've, I took lessons from when I was five to 12, and then I quit. I quit. On piano? Yeah. 
my and you know every day it was half an hour to 45 minutes practice before i went to school brutal not the first thing you want to do in the morning (laughs) no so after like six years both my, my mom was the one that taught me and both her and i had had it yeah so i had lessons once a week and it's just the next week my brother went he was he's five years younger than me uh-huh. next week he just went i was done <laughs> you were out <laughs> they pulled me put him in and he ended up getting um you know his master's in jazz composition oh so my god it took i dodged a bullet yeah but he, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, it's he, so rigorous though i mean and it's not like you only did it for a few weeks no it was um i don't know i have mixed feelings about it i wish that i hadn't quit in a way or i wish maybe that the approach had been something that was more sustainable but like i I basically burned out at the age of 10 do you think because that's such a regimented way of learning or practicing right did that kind of wire you in a certain way as far as you know thinking about making stuff or, or being creative maybe i haven't really thought about that but i mean the whole idea of suzuki is you learn by by ear by right. your ear yeah and so it's in a way it's sort of like being creative from the hip yeah you know you're not it's not it's it's not as formulaic you're you're using your your gut and your instinctual sort of um creative um functions yeah and i guess if i had to describe my sculptural practice it would be more that way yeah. sort of like a, a sort of a gut a, a knee-jerk kind of approach but yeah it, i mean um i think it did that and and um you know running i was i did track and cross country yeah in terms of in terms of rigor have been things that i've applied to my practice in, tr- in terms of just like how how, how can we go as hard as possible. Yeah, that's a work ethic there between the two things. Yes, and being sort of analytical about like your output. Like yeah. I'm at I'm at sixty percent. Let's like, <laughs> let's take it to eighty percent here. Like let's see like how long we can hold this for. Right. Is um, this in Southern California? In Northern California. Northern California. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna yeah. say I can't imagine. I mean, it's a lot of. I just imagine growing up in Southern California, but just wanting to be outside all the time. And I guess sports. No, I was I was an active kid. It was yeah. tor- it was torture for me. Yeah, because I did want to be, out. and I was doing all of those active things as well. But we were just doing piano on top of it. Did so. you like it? Like all the stuff? I, I'm asking for a friend because my son <laughs> my son does so many things, and we kind of feel like, oh, this is good because, well, you know, in New York City, it's not like there's backyards to play in, so you kind of have right. to organize right. things, you right. know. And sometimes right, right. we worry it's too much, but so I'm always interested when people grew up you know, with a lot on their plate, whether they resent that or whether it's valuable to them or. Well, I didn't, I I was, I was, I was busy. Yeah. And it, it, it kept me on track. Right. Um, I like to be busy now. And it's funny because when you're busy doing something for someone else, it's horrible. Right. When you're busy doing something for yourself, it's, it's great. And you know, I would come home from school. It was exhausting. Mm -hmm. I had done, you know, I had, senior year of high school I had zero period jazz and then school and then cross country practice afterward and you're exhausted but as soon as you get home I, I all of a sudden would be busy doing my own my own thing and so there's sort of it's um I don't know it's hard it's hard to say um 
I guess I didn't, it wasn't really optional. Yeah. You just, you're a creature of habit of what's put on your plate, right? Yeah. And, and, uh, um, you know, I, I think my parents presented it in this sort of like, well, this is, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Not like, I mean, they asked me, do you want to do piano? I got asked that once. Right. I said, yeah. <laughs> As if it's an option. At five years old. Yeah. Hey, do you want to take piano lessons? Uh, yeah. Okay. Boom. Yeah. You want to go out for cross country? Uh, yeah, <laughs> done. Sure. When <laughs> so. you got home after all that and you got to do what you wanted to do, what was that? Was it drawing? Yeah, I, w- I was always drawing. Yeah. That was how I got into all of this. And I feel like a lot of us, that was the entry yeah. point, was drawing. And, you know, most, most of the time it was just, like, rendering. Like, how closely, how accurate can I render this? Right. This sort of thing. So just copying. You wanted it to look like that. Yeah, know? actually... My favorite thing, though, so we, we, I did that a lot. I would, co- you know, copy uh, comic books or whatever. But my mom would go down to the, to the uh, newspaper uh, printing place, and she'd get these big rolls of newsprint. Mm-hmm. And we had this long hallway. So on the weekends, I'd have, I would have buddies come over, and we'd roll out the paper down the hallway. So it was maybe like 20 feet. And we'd start. It would be like a three- or four-hour endeavor. I'd start on one side and my buddy would be on the other side Mm -hmm. and we'd start drawing armies. Right. And we like amass our armies for hours on, on side and they'd, they'd encroach upon one another. They get closer and closer. And when they, when we get close enough, about two or three feet away, then they would start battling. The battle happens. Yeah. And you know, then we start (laughs) laying into each other's army on opposite side, you know, you'd be sending missiles over there and everything. So it's just like a, yeah, just full on warfare. Was it like, schedule like one person would battle and shoot and then the other person would go it was a bedlam was it like all guns at once yeah it was all it was it was a, it was everybody go yeah yeah once you got in range it was you were fair game so you know we would like draw these tanks and stuff and they and it was sort of there was some there was some um honor to the system yeah you know how it worked but uh yeah and you, you know you'd send your missiles over there and you'd, you'd scribble on the tank and right. put the you know and it, you draw the the explosion as it was hitting, so there would be some remnant still of that of that drawing. But right. Yeah, that was that was uh, that was. Um, I should get back into that. That's a pretty great idea as far as like the layout of it. Like you're drawing over space, and then you it crescendos to this yeah battle yeah. royale in the middle. Yeah, it those are probably s- amazing looking. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't have any of them left because, of course, they would like you know we'd spill juice on them and we'd be working on four or five hours, and it was never like about. I mean, I think we just crumpled them up at the end. It was yeah. just about the, like, just this battle. Yeah. It was about the fun of it. Or if you want to analyze it as, you know, professorially, it was like, you know, the uh, the rigor. It was right. about the uh, the performative nature of the drama. Sure, sure. My <laughs> parents were like, it's cool. They're just doing that for four hours, just quiet, just, you know. Yeah. Just keeping busy. Yeah, yeah. So you had music and you had art was obviously, I mean, you know, creative environment was in a household. I mean, right. what was what were your parents doing? Were they creative? So, um, your mom taught piano? Uh, no. Or just you? No, my mom, I mean, my mom just suffered through it with me. And my mom still plays the piano, actually. Yeah. So, and we, we started at the same time. She, she started sort of just by giving me lessons. And then, okay. and then, and then uh, my mother actually wakes up every morning and plays the piano for half an hour to an hour by herself secretly. And, and uh, she's done that for 35 years. She's got to be good. No one, we don't know. No one's no heard one her. She never played for it. She just does it for herself. Yeah. Does she have headphones or something? 
No, I mean she puts the practice pedal on and everybody's sleeping. I mean I yeah. like in in I've I've heard her play, but it's mostly you know and and when someone's practicing as as opposed to when they're actually you know um, playing a final piece. Yeah, she never really does that. It's just practice. But it's yeah, it's amazing. So, yeah, it's like a commitment. Uh, yeah, like a meditative sort of thing. Just, yeah. yeah, it's it's cool. Um, my my mom and my my mother and my father and my uncle all, all owned a bicycle store together. Uh-huh. So that was what they were working on the whole time, running this business. Right. And initially, my uncle and my dad were, um, you know, all three of them were equal partners. But my uncle and my dad sort of um, worked on the bikes. And my mom ran a cycle, uh, clothing, a uh, cycling apparel. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and she had maybe four or five uh, women who were sewing back there. Yeah. So that was another thing that I think really strongly influenced my work was growing up in the bike shop and, and going to There was a door in between my mother's workshop with, you know, all the women and all the sewing machines and my uncle and my, and my dad's, uh, you know, uh, workshop. Yeah. So I would go in between, between the bikes and the wrenches and the sewing machines and the fabric and, and these two sort of, two sort of worlds. And that, um, you know, just growing up there and watching my mother sort of assemble things, f- work on patterns, figure, figure things out. And my uncle and my dad sort of, you know, work with all these tools. Uh, I just grew up around a lot of, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't art making in any way, but it was the same, the same, a lot of the same materials that I used, that I use now and the same approaches in terms of, you know, uh, problem solving and, yeah. and, 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 you know, my mother was back there inventing clothes and apparel. So, and is the aesthetic to that, but also the function and the form of it, you know, three dimensional with the bikes. Yeah. Yeah. Ev- yeah. Everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know that and the, and the, the other component too. And, and I realize it now, um, with my own kids, mm-hmm. it was Legos too. It was oh, something yeah. that really like helped me sc- sculpturally, you know, because there's a framework that you're that you're working within, but then there's a lot of problem solving in terms of structural integrity and things yeah. like that. And so that's like not maybe not so much in terms of like a, a creative vision, but just in terms of putting things together, right? Which was really important for me um, in figuring out how to like how to make what I was envisioning, right? So yeah. And what's besides the piano and the lessons was it a musical household? Was there music on a lot? Uh, yeah, my parents were always listening. You know, they were um, always listening to music. There was a lot of um, um, soul music and country music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, you know, they were coming out of the 60s. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we, had, we were always listening to, uh, to uh, doing a lot of road trips and music in the car and stuff. Right. Yeah. So, so when you were in high school... Was art a thing, or what? Like, what was the? I mean, we're we're probably of a somewhat similar genera- generation. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, skateboarding and right. punk rock and all that stuff right. was heavily influenced, and in, you know, rap music like right. heavily influenced the aesthetic and that kind of like feeling of, you know, identifying with something that's counterculture in some way. Sure. I think. Sure. I mean, I would imagine that that might have been part of your high school experience or, or growing up in some capacity kind of, I, I had to I had to do a lot of it on my own the the, the I, I grew up in a small town there's only 15,000 people mm-hmm. in this town I grew up in a really remote part of California about s- six hours north of San Francisco yeah 
and uh, it was a, it was a weird community. It's uh, Humboldt County. Mm-hmm. It was a Humboldt as a county I, I grew up in as a uh, number one producer of marijuana in the United States, and so it was a weird um, it was a weird place to grow up. So it was marijuana and then cattle and lumber. Mm-hmm. So half the school, these kids were coming from ranches. They were you know cowboys and cowgirls coming to school in cowboy boots. And the other half was were um, you know people that lived in the town, but also there's this like liberal hippie sort of yeah. um, community. So two very different groups of people, and uh, you know so uh, students of of uh, the high school that I went to sort of straddled these worlds in in in, in some form or fashion. Um, but the art program was was not great. Yeah. That's generous. It was it was it was horrible. Yeah, right. it was horrible. There was one there was one photography class. One one teacher I had, um, who was a window into for me into what what these classes could be like. And mm-hmm. as I as I went on and went to college and got that, that, that went to um, grad school, this was sort of like she was very much like like that. What 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 I wish. I could have had more of. Yeah. But, you know, I only I only got to take that class a couple times, but everything else was just like horrible. Horrible kind of art classes. Mr. So that didn't turn you off from you know go, when you got to the point where you're like, okay, I'm going to go to college. Right. What was your mindset, you know? I was I was making everything that at home. I was coming home yeah. and like doing doing it on my own. And um, I, I would take all those classes because I I I loved making, mm-hmm. but they were all kind of a bummer, you know. Mr. Monty was a drawing and painting teacher. I think I'm not sure what his what that class was, but we we spent like a the class we had to cut out a picture of a dessert from a food magazine. And then make a grid and just do it square by square mm-hmm. for like the whole class. That was it. That was the class. And just pixelated. I, yeah, I remember the last one I did with him. It was like a strawberry shortcake thing. It had strawberries on it and stuff. That was like the last. That was I, I spent months on that. Oh, you mean the whole? Not the class period. You mean the whole class? Like oh yeah, front to back. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's brutal, Mister. <laughs> yeah, Mister Monty and his. I think his father-in-law. They ended up killing his wife halfway through my senior year. Oh my god! And then we had a substitute the rest of the year. I can imagine <laughs> and that was even worse. So, jeez. <laughs> so yeah, it wasn't. I I don't I don't know. I just knew that that was what I wanted to do, even though I wasn't being shown many good examples of what that could be. Really, well, I'm glad you made it. I mean, that's not laying the foundation for a. Uh, Yes, <laughs> a smooth path because so many people have that one art teacher in high school that really like you know gives them great response and they feel like oh yeah this is something I'm good at I could do this you right know? my I don't know my parent my parents my parents were not really that artistic I my I I um they just encouraged me they saw that I liked to do it and yeah. they just encouraged me which was and I remember I went to take my PSAT. My dad picked me up, and you had to write after, you, you know, this was, and I didn't, at a certain point, I didn't really think this was something that I could do. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just thought it was something that I liked 
to do. Right. And um, you did your PSAT, practice SAT, and at the bottom of it, you had to write what you imagined you would you would go on to do. Yeah. And I had checked business. And so my father came and picked me up and was driving me home, and he was asking me about it, and I sort of described the whole thing to him. And for some reason, I told him about this check list at the bottom of the PSAT. And uh, he said, well, what did you pick? And I told him business. He goes, well, why did, why did you do that? And I said, well, I don't know. You run a business. It seemed like, seemed like it makes sense. He goes, well, what, um, what would you really like to do? <laughs> I go, well, I don't know. I don't know, like, um, you know, make art, I guess. He goes, well, you should have you checked that off. You should do that. I don't know. Okay, I mean, like, I, there, was that there was, a box for art? <laughs> there probably wasn't, but I checked it off in my head yeah. at that moment. Right. In a way, um, I mean, my my mom and my dad had oh, they'd always been putting me in. Uh, they were always putting me in art classes. I was always taking week week classes on the weekend. They were always putting me in these classes yeah. because obviously I wasn't getting it at, at school, and so I took a lot of great classes outside of school. Um, but I just thought it was maybe something that they were doing to keep me busy. Or right. I wasn't quite sure. I, I liked it. I just didn't think it was something that was possible. Yeah. And at that moment, it was at that moment that my dad sort of like gave me permission in a way to think that was something that I could actually do. That's and a, years That's a pro-dad move. I mean, that's pretty significant. Totally. but Dude, Because there probably wasn't a box. He gave you that box, essentially. Yeah, and I got I've I've gotten upset with him about that years later when you know really? <laughs> like oh sure I you know I moved to New York I was like had no money as trying to you know be an artist and it was just horrible and I called him up I'm like Dad what did you do oh like my God that's, that's such a bummer <laughs> for Dad can you imagine as a dad like if you're like go out there and you could do whatever you want and then right. you get that phone call it's like yeah this sucks man why didn't you tell me to go into like law Bus- to business yeah, yeah. I, was, I was gonna go I checked it off we were ready to go <laughs> so I I called I've called him up a couple times I mean like oh dad like what what did you do to me like this is horrible but um well he must be happy now yeah. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I mean, they, they always, they're always like, ah, whatever. I mean, my parents are not really into complaining or whining or anything like that. Um, so I never, you know, they were like, ah, we don't want to hear about it. You yeah. Know, figure it out. Right. I don't know. It's just like, you know. And he, 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 he says he doesn't recall that moment anyway. So I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. So. Well, to his credit, as yeah. fathers, you know right. that the memory goes. Right, yeah. <laughs> the Conven- details. Conveniently going. sometimes. Right, so. yeah. But yeah, no, but it, re- it really was that moment when I was like, oh, because that was, you know, you had, we had, I guess I had to kind of decide what I wanted to, to go to college for. Yeah. That was what that question was referring to. On Did the he go to college? Yeah. Both my parents went to college. Um, my dad um, was a history major and uh, my mom um, did home ec, which was a major. Yeah. And so I remember taking that in high school. <laughs> Yeah, I, I took it in middle school. I loved it. I mean, I always lo- I mean, I loved sewing anyway, yeah. just from growing up in that. But but my mom um, and ended up using her major too, so right. it was kind of. But um, but they and my father was a teacher as well for a while, and um, I think I think they had a similar a thing where they were on sort of paths, and then all of a sudden um, they just sort of realized that they could maybe do something that they hadn't um, considered realistically yeah my my uncle um proposed actually you know what i think they proposed this idea to my uncle but they went my parents actually um 
they rode their bikes across country and got home and decided that they should open a bike store. Yeah. Which was <laughs> revelation, a crazy thing at the, but you know, to my, my father had, um, a teaching job and insurance and stuff like that. And they, yeah. sort of, they sort of walked away from that. I think my, my, my father actually had a similar conversation with my uncle, um, and sort of ran the whole scenario by him. Should I leave my job? And, yeah you know, open this bike store. And my Uncle Marty is still alive. He's 104 years old. Whoa. Um, he, he, he had worked, toiled away. I think, um, I think he was a draftsman or in a, in a sort of an office setting. Yeah. He said, you know, I, I worked and um, you should, you should do what you, I, you know, it, it was, it was good, but I wish that I had done something that, I, you know, I wish I had be- put myself on a path that um was a little bit more of a risk in terms Followed of like, the passion yeah yeah and uh my dad my father died so maybe that was maybe that was just someone had done that for him and he in turn return was doing that for me um so you went to college for art or you thought i'm gonna do this yeah after that i was like i mean i remember just thinking like well i was sitting in the car with my dad thinking like well that that sounds crazy but if all right if it's okay yeah. <laughs> like i'm gonna go okay you know it seems like uh, uh way better than anything else right yeah that was i didn't want to do anything else really and you enjoyed it so totally i loved it yeah and i still do i mean going to work and making art all day is just like um is great yeah so you shouldn't call it work right it's no like, no i i feel great i feel great doing it yeah. yeah so what were you doing in college like what was the art situation like how did you develop into what you do now so i went to school for painting i mean because that was really yeah and what i enjoyed doing and i had a lot of for, from so many years of drawing and painting i had a lot of uh, technical like rendering facility you know i was yeah. i was good at rendering i won't say painting um because there's so much more that has to go into that right. but in my mind i thought i was good and that was what i did um, and I sort of went through undergrad just like that. I had, in a way, I had so much drawing facility that I sort of like kind of went through undergrad without, without too much problem, mm-hmm. because the drawings and paintings that I were making were were well rendered. And then I I um, I went to grad school, and I got into the painting program. I think by accident, actually, I took a couple interviews. Um, at different at different schools, and I think I I ended up getting into a number of schools as well, and one of them was Tyler, and I think I got into all of them sort of accidentally. How I do, think how does that? <laughs> I think that they misunderstood my intentions, and they thought they were much grander than they were. I was making these paintings, um, and I didn't. They just were they were accidentally good, if that makes any sense i was i was making them for one reason mm-hmm. and they were being understood for another reason i see what you mean yeah and i think they interpreted my work to be um it, it was well made it looked good mm-hmm. but what i was doing was was not that smart but they mistook what i was doing for something very interesting yeah, which was, <laughs> which wasn't what I was doing, and um, 
the artists that I was looking at were looking at the books that I was reading. I think when I went to take these interviews, I think they thought that maybe I was putting them on. I remember I went to um, take an interview at RISD, mm-hmm. and I flew out there. It was an in-person interview, and um, they asked me. I remember they asked me who my favorite painter was, and I told them Frank Fazetta. I don't know if you even know who I don't this know is. Who that is. So Frank Fazetta is um, from the '60s and '70s. He did all the covers for Conan. So, oh, okay. If you remember the movie um, National Lampoon's, um, yeah, that's a spoof on the the, the exactly. Schwarzenegger one where he's like holding the thing up. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. There was always like a a, a bare chested like barbarian holding a giant <laughs> broadsword, and there was a bunch of like snakes and women around his feet. So this was Frank Fazetta, and. Uh, I just thought he was like the best painter. He is. He's, Unironically. Yes. Just like he, the way he painted, I just thought was fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, beautiful, like, um, you know, just, they're beautiful paintings. They're just, they're just uh, for, for um, you know, I think he did some of the covers for heavy metal and stuff, you know, right. it's just like, but I just like, unironically, this is what I liked. And they, and I presented this to them. Like, <laughs> did they know favorite? who he was? I think they did. Maybe they didn't, and they just thought, "Wow, I've, I've never even heard of that painter." Or maybe yeah. they did, and they thought, "Wow, that is like such a ballsy answer to like give right. RISD." To, you know, I but like I didn't know that. I I was just answering the question, like, "Who's your favorite painter?" Well, Frank Fazetta, <laughs> obviously, that guy is. He's you know he does the cover of heavy metal and like right. you know Conan and stuff like that, and I think and then that in conjunction with my work looking at it and um, the artist statement that I had written was just I had no understanding of what that even was supposed to look like Yeah. so it was just totally bizarre and kind of narcissistic and I think they just thought wow this is like really wild but it was all kind of a misunderstanding I shouldn't I shouldn't I probably shouldn't have gotten gotten in based on I mean if they had if they had a, a slightly broader picture of what they were looking at instead of just this portfolio and the interview mm-hmm. they probably would have just said no no thanks or we need to there needs to be a lot more development right anyway I, I ended up going to Tyler because they were going to send me to Rome the second year Stan Whitney called oh, me up yeah. on the phone yeah yeah said, the oh, Rome program yeah I said oh that sounds good I really I hadn't been to Philadelphia I didn't know anything about their program it was a really really rigorous conceptually rigorous painting program so I went through undergrad um, and in undergrad I raced bikes for Schwinn Mm -hmm. and did a lot of other things surfed and I was always I didn't I I wasn't that focused when I was in class wait where were you surfing in Santa Cruz oh in undergrad in undergrad yes in undergrad Yeah, yeah yeah so so there wasn't you know I'd go to art history class and I was like I'd, I'd have been on an 80 mile bike ride already and I was exhausted. And so there was time for a nap. Yeah. I, I always went to class, but a lot of times like I, I was asleep by the end. Right. So anyway, I, I, so with this in conjunction with sort of accidentally getting into these grad schools, I, I found myself at Tyler Stan, Stan Whitney is like my painting professor. Yeah. And I'm in these like four hour discussion classes with like Saul Anton from art, yeah. art, uh, art forum. And I was instantly and completely lost. I just had no, no idea 
what was going on in, in any way. I didn't understand what anybody was talking about. Yeah. It was just like everybody, everybody within, within the first week, everybody realized a big mistake had been made. The teachers, the faculty, myself, <laughs> everybody. We, we got a deer in headlights here. <laughs> it was just like, I mean, the, people were coming in going, oh my God, like what? You know, because that's a, it was a small painting program. I think there was only 10 or 15 people. In that's the what I was going to say. It has to be small for them to notice that, right? Really a small. lot of programs are big where you could sort right. of sneak was, in there. It was really small and everybody knew all the other students, teachers, everybody knew that like this, this was, <laughs> this, this was like a big mistake that happened. So anyway, I had to like, I had to kind of fight for my life and I had to learn everything in basically five or six months. Yeah. And there was a couple other students that really helped me out that I would have come over to my, my studio and I would just ask them like just questions like, what is what are they t- like what is um you know everybody's talking like postmodernism what yeah. what are they talking about like right. what is like explain that to me and luckily there was a few people that were like that helped me out yeah and it was like let me break it down for you here's here's what it is so i had like a crash course um and uh you know but but the paintings my paintings never really got any better they were, were they a la Conan poster? Kind of. I mean, I yeah. was trying to paint the best that I could. And there was a lot of nudity in them. And uh, so at a certain point, I I was having trouble getting people to do these ridiculous things. I was I was painting from life. And I was having trouble getting people to do these ridiculous things that I, that I wanted to paint. Um, a lot of them were, you know, they were just um, kind of horrible. And so I thought, well, I'm going to... I'm going to make some models, some like doll, doll like figures that I can have do whatever I want. Like maquettes for the paintings. Yeah. And so I started making these and kind of getting into it. And they were, they had to be, a lot of them were nude, Mm -hmm. the paintings. So these maquettes, these dolls were nude. And I started really getting in, like they were, they became graphic, you know, they all had pubic hair and Mm -hmm. everything. And then they started to be people that I knew. So I would, and, but not everybody I had seen naked. So I was making stuff (laughs) up and imagining like, God, you know, I wonder if that guy is circumcised or not. And sort of like, you know, just everything, everything was going into it. (laughs) These are people, you know, like in the program or some of them in the program, some of them like, Oh, that woman works down at the grocery market. She has a great, like beautiful hair. I'm going to make her, put her in a painting right and i have to start imagining like uh, i mean it's weird it's kind of weird like genital what, improvisation is yeah, never yeah, comfortable. yeah 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 that was exactly <laughs> like boy what does that look like and um so at a certain point um and i don't know if i realized it or all the people around me realized it but these became much more interesting than the paintings right people um, love to say that you know like oh you're whatever the scraps are, whatever right. is not in the painting. They're like, right. that's a kind of, you should show that, you know? Right. And that's what I did. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. You know, because <laughs> like, um, that was like the first positive feedback that I had gotten in a right. while because, you know, undergrad, everybody's like, oh, you're a great painter. I go to grad school under, or gra- by the time I got to grad school, it was just like eight months of people being like, ah, yeah, I don't know if this is the right environment for you. I don't think you're going to make it. Maybe yeah. you should think about doing something else. That's a dip so, in the cold water, isn't it, when that happens? Yeah, when it was, you're like it was cruising brutal. through undergrad and like, yeah, sure. you're working really hard, you're doing great. Oh, Stan, Stan Whitney would come in and it was brutal. I mean, it, and, and, and looking back on it now, I'm really glad because it prepared me for how, how things really are. Yeah. But just would come in and just 
crushed me. Just week after week, just completely broken. Um, That's good for you. <laughs> yeah, right. I would like go out like every you know every critique. I would, like make it through the critique, walk out of the building, go on my go sit in my car and like cry for like an hour. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, but every week, like not just like one time, it's just like every week. That was just like my thing. I had to like time it, like get through the crit, make sure I was the last one, right? So that I would just can go to my car right afterwards and start crying. Exercise yeah. the demons. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just talking to someone about grad school crits and how brutal it was, you know, and I remember being like when we had crits, there was like a balcony and people would right. just come from the city and watch. Right. right. It's a like gladiator sport. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it, I mean, it's an endurance thing too. Some of them can go for a long time. Yeah. Mine were over pretty quickly most of the time. <laughs> well, like, Yo. you're the last one. That's a strategy. If you go late, they're going to be tired. And they're going to want to wrap it up, you know, and not go too long, probably. Yeah, I mean, my main thing was that so I didn't have a breakdown in front of everybody. Right. That was the main, the main. A quick exit. The main idea, yeah. But, so, you know, at a certain point, eight months in, or basically at the beginning of my second year, people started coming in and going, oh, these aren't interesting. Oh, shit. It was like, oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. I'm doing something. They like it. Yeah. I should should do that. Um, So I just stopped painting. And it was a hard, it was a really hard thing for me, actually, because I actually, I actually love to paint. Mm-hmm. I love moving the material around. I love, like, drawing something and making it look exactly like the thing I'm drawing. I love going to figure drawing class. Mm-hmm. I just, like, there's something about that that's just so much fun. And so, to, like, and that's something that I had done for, like, 20 years. I, I, ever since I was a kid, I, was, I had, like, in my mind, had this idea that I was good at drawing and painting. Uh, and so to kind of walk away from that was really a difficult thing. Yeah. But it was the best thing that, you know, that, that, that I could have done because, uh, um, you know, I, I had walked away from a, from the certain facility, but, but, right. you know, I walked into this world that was like, you know, perfect for me that all of a sudden everything made sense for, for that, that hadn't made sense before. And so then I, then after that it was just sculpture and it actually once, once every like year, I try to like, like deep deep down inside of me, I I, I, I still wish that I was a painter. I still yeah. envy painters, and I still think of them as sort of the top of the food chain. And um, about once a year, I, I like secretly try to make a painting or right. think that I've figured out some way to produce flat work that hangs on the wall. Yeah. And ninety percent of the time, it's just you know, still, still, I still don't have it. Well, yeah. do you think part of that too is because like, if you're trying to just here and there squeeze one out and it's it's not like you might have to get in the rhythm like if you dedicated two years to it and you stretch like 50 canvases you think at the end of that you might be feeling better about it uh, or it's just not no i don't know yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i my work has always ever since that point um until recently there hasn't been a real a body of work that sort of evolved. It was always it would jump from one idea and production method to a, a drastically different one. Yeah. So in a way, I'm used to picking up something new and being able to tell right in the beginning if this is going to be a sort of a promising um, sort of thing. Yeah, and like a uh, change that'll work. Yeah, you can you kind of know in the beginning, and and painting it never it never never is it's not an easy thing to do to keep maneuvering or you know kind of it's almost like reinventing the wheel in a way 
painting I I I still like I I still don't like I I know good paintings now. Yeah. You know, and I know I know when I see one. Um but 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 me for me it's 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 I, I don't know. It's going to be a something that is always kind of haunting. So and what's that, your the the that's a big shift in working method, right? Right. I mean, you know, the painting thing of your palette and a flat wall there and it's that one to one and you're right. making things in space and right. I imagine that you know you're you're not making every square inch of every single thing that you do and there's right. like a there's a different sort of pacing to it right how do you enjoy that shift of process or is it something that's innate I mean I know you talked about earlier in life you know floating between those two rooms and right seeing things being produced and worked on and there's something familiar about that right so does the method kind of work for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because when I, when I was young and I was drawing, for instance, that was um, that was what I thought was the creative the creative moment for yeah. me. The immediacy, right? It's that moment. Yeah, but it was in my. I had a very sort of rigid idea of what creativity was. Yeah, and so you know, we would draw, and then after we finish our battle, we go outside and. I lived in this on this big piece of property, and we'd go up and we'd climb up into these trees and bring all this wood that we like stole from my dad's garage and like make these tree forts or mm-hmm. whatever it was. And I never really labeled a lot of the other activities that I was doing as 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 creative right. or, or or art making in any way. It was just sort of like this other these other things that I was doing. And so all of these weird like fort making and ditch digging and like. Um, you know, potion um, that we all, all of these sort of things that we were doing. I, I'm realizing now we're really like are cl- more closely related to what I do. What I do now, yeah. So it's just it's just in a way like, and I, once I realized that it's a it's a it was a broadening of the definition of what like my creative endeavors are. Right. Is it just this one specific thing, or is it kind of the way that I've approached a lot of things, and and so that's more how my practice um i understand it now is like it's just a much wider much more encompassing all-encompassing sort of way of like thinking about about being creative right you know what's interesting about it too is that it sounds like early on you had this specific idea of like what we would call now like work like creative work is this very specific way of drawing and right you know, but what you were doing afterwards was really like just like playing. Right, right. So now you've brought your art making process closer to just play, in a sense that it's a- not strictly yeah. that. Right, absolutely. But you always the grass is always greener in a way. Like you know, so the pain. Sure. Like there's this idealized sort of notion that you know the wall. If I were making those paintings or those drawings, that's like the real. That's the right. like you said the top tier or right. whatever. You know, right. like you've created that construct right. in your mind, but really it's just about play. Absolutely. You know. And in a way, like, I think a, a form like painting couldn't really hold me because there's so many things I want to do and so many ideas that I have that just can't fit into that, yeah. that it would be, that it would be really restrictive in a way for me, especially now that I know that like, like, wow, like, you know, here's these pool floats and they look like people and what about if we twisted them and stacked them on top of one another? It's just, um, you know, the best, I, I, I don't know how I would approach that if, if I was confined to, um, a painting like 
um, like to painting or drawing or something like this. So, well, the the idea of constraint is interesting too because so many of your newer sculptures are things that are constrained or pinched or locked, right? Seemingly in the position, right? Where did that come from? Well, I guess it's jumping pretty. But uh, so we went from like these maquettes to of the Conan poster esque things to how did it migrate into what you're doing now? So there was a couple pieces I think that like that really um, brought me to sort of my current state, and they're not they're not related um, in their form at all to what I'm doing now. But it was just a way of thinking about work. The first one, um, I had, uh, it's the difference between, um, and I don't just mean experientially, it's the difference between showing somebody something and telling them about it. Mm -hmm. So before this piece that I'm about to tell you about, I was, I was telling people about, about something and afterwards I realized that I needed to be showing them. They needed to be seeing that and experiencing it for themselves. And I don't and I don't mean experientially. I just mean like they instead of me telling them, they needed to they needed to be they needed to have their own connection, their own experience. And so the work that sort of brought me to this was experiential. <laughs> but I realized that that experience was something that I needed to figure out how to put into the rest of my work without having people actually having to become like physically engaged. And right. the, the, the thing that I, I, this piece I made, it was a, it was a low table and I built it in my studio and it went from wall to wall. So the whole entire room was covered with a table and the table had a slight tilt. So at the back of the studio, it was maybe six inches higher than in, than in the front. Mm-hmm. And there was an aisle cut into the table and it went halfway down. And as you would walk down the aisle, it was almost like you were wading into the wading into the table, like mm-hmm. a body of water. And as you waded out into the piece, the table would get higher because of the angle. And it was enough that the angle was shallow enough that you didn't really notice that it was tilted, but that as you walked out, you noticed that the table was sort of getting higher. Yeah. And so you waded, you know, you waded out in the beginning sort of at your thighs and by the time you were all the way into the piece you were at your waist and the under underneath the table there was a motion sensor and the motion sensor was connected to a couple transducers that were that were attached to the table turning the essentially turning the entire table into a speaker mm-hmm. and what would happen is as people would wade out into the piece it would trigger um uh, the soundtrack to jaws and so that you know they would be out there and they'd be standing sort of waist deep in my piece and then all of a sudden dun 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 dun, dun. and um you know these two things would happen instantly you know what this is and it's this sort of campy um connection to pop culture right but then also there's a real sense of like terror as well which is what that movie has is it's scary yeah the idea that danger yeah and and we all even though we know it's this movie we know it's pop we know it's this camp thing we all still connect it to this this idea of, of danger yeah. and so this was a very experiential piece obviously people were wading out into this and it and it was it was the first successful thing that I'd made in a while 
Um, this was in like 2008. And uh, after making it, one, uh, one of the people that I was working with had been sort of grilling me for a while about telling and not showing. And after they came and they saw this piece and it was like, hey, this is it. You did it. Good job. And I felt good for about five minutes. And then I realized that I needed to do this from here on out. Yeah. This, this is what works. And I needed to do this in a way that wasn't experiential. How can I have people see my work and have them connect in their own way before I even need to say anything right. to them? So when it's experiential, it's easier, of course, because you're manipulating the viewer. You're you know? putting them in yeah. a space or a condition. Sure. But when you take all of that away, how can you get them to do that? How can you get those same emotions and feelings from the viewer um, without forcing it on them? Yeah. And so that from there, from that point forward, um, you know, my work became, I think, more conceptually based because that I realized that was a, a super um, important component. And it got more and more and more conceptual over the next few years until um, I made this piece where I ended up stealing, I, I ended up uh, curating a show, quote-unquote. And for the show, I would go do these studio visits. I would, I would go to the studio and I would steal a work of art from the artist. Mm -hmm. Something peripherally related to their practice, not like a painting from their wall, but maybe... Um, you know, one of the painters that I stole something from, he had this stick and he would use it on all of his paintings and he would sort of distance himself a few feet from the painting and he would, he would, he would draw with this, with this stick. So, you know, I stole, there was, I think 80, 80 artifacts, let's call them, mm -hmm. that I stole. And some of them were, were paintings and drawings, sketches. They were all, they were all, things that you could relate you could tell were, were of a, of that person's practice but maybe yeah. not directly and so I stole all 80 objects after doing like 90 studio visits over the course of three months I mean this is a longer story involving the gallery and how I sort of talked them into this but um, at the end of three months everybody got an email from me sort of explaining what had happened. Oh, that, was that awkward? It's <laughs> um, a yes lot of people. And, yes and no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like my... Uh, Carolyn was really worried about it because I was lying and stealing from basically everybody that I had made connections with over the last decade in New yeah. York. So my entire like infrastructure. Um, they got an email that said, you know, I've, I'm, I've stole this work of art. We're doing the show. You can either consign the work to the gallery or we can return it third option was that they could press charges but that wasn't sort of explicit in the email it's like a, I had spoken with a lawyer basically the amount of work that I had taken was amounted to like a class C felony it's like a collective grand theft larceny yeah yeah class C yeah anyway um, there's a there's another part of this but but um, I think maybe um I'll just tell this version. Uh, the New York Times ended up 
coming undercover with me on one of the heists and and the, you know the show opened and uh bbc news wrote about it and it was on the cover of new york times art section and that you know art forum everybody wrote about it and talked about it and it was some people loved it some people hated it of a course lot of, a yeah. lot of people hated it yeah it was you know there was a sort of like and that i mean it was supposed to be the artist was exploited and so, so much of what it art is in galleries and museums now is stolen from different artists or cultures you right. know just look at the look at the Met, for instance, and that was sort of the point of the whole thing. Um, and at that point, I had the option of my work becoming entirely sort of about social practice. Mm-hmm. And I had, I was approached by different galleries, sort of asking, "What's next? Like, what are we right. like? Big gallery, galleries that like I would be happy to work with." And and two things sort of happened. Number one, I came up with another idea that was. I think just as good, but mm-hmm. logistically much more difficult. And it just never, it, it, in, ter- in conjunction with me never really being able to get this second idea going and realizing that maybe I didn't want to just be a conceptual social practice artist, I decided to go back into making and, and have my work, you know, I had steadily become, my work had steadily become sort of more and more conceptual. Mm-hmm. And I decided to just go back the other way. And so basically those, those two things, those two events, those two pieces were the thing that sort of brought me to this equilibrium of where I am now um, with, 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 with the sculptures that I'm making. Yeah. So, you know, between those, between those two worlds, basically. Um, and so it, it and, and it took me a while you know, to get there and, and to recover, I'll say, I'll use the word recover from that stolen artwork show, which was the, the title of that show was called Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had to kind of reinvent my, um, like my brand, my, who I, who I was as an artist because yeah. people all of a sudden, I, I had gotten a lot of attention for this one thing. Well, so so it, I mean, it is a publicity laden concept totally i mean it, all those galleries i imagine that came to or all the attention you got it was because right. you were getting a lot of press absolutely and they would come and um you know that was just that that was a that was a part of what you know t- to, to have them come to my studio and then the, the only thing that i would show them was like just me talking about a new idea that i had yeah um you know it never it never quite worked and then for years after that people would come to the studio and i had already be sort of made up my mind that I wanted to just make make things again mm-hmm. and they would come to the studio and it was like well what what is what is this yeah, what, what, are, what, what are we what are we doing like, what what do you what are you making you're making th- like what about what about when you stole stuff like, yeah. what are you what are we going to steal next what, right. what's ha- what's what's going to happen so it took me a couple of years to like sort of recover from that um and build and build myself back up but isn't it isn't it interesting to that project of just how transparent sometimes with an art world that prides itself on being or sort of espouses this kind of hierarchical, you know, elite, not elitism, but, you know, that, that what we're doing is, you know, about this artwork or whatever, and that how quickly it can dissolve whenever there is publicity involved or whether there's this bigger chance for a popular spotlight that that all kind of, gets pushed to the side and it's like oh yeah this this could be good for right pr you know what i mean sure sure 
I mean, I, I had always, I had always sort of understood that, understood that part of it. I had this always, is business. Yeah, yeah, and I've always been, I've always been forthcoming with myself about what it is that we're doing here. Yeah, you know, this is a commodity. Selling work. We're trying to sell it. Yeah, yeah. and that was that was, of course, that wasn't so much about commodity as it was about, um, you know, reputation and brand building. It's just sort of name recognition, like getting how, you know, and and even like me. And, approaching the New York Times and asking them if they wanted to come undercover on the heist. I mean, that was, I was, I had obviously understood that in doing that, that was going to be, um, and I was never totally forthcoming with them about exactly what was going on. Yeah. But just roping them into the whole thing, you know, it wasn't like I was, um, I mean, I knew, I knew what we were doing, but I had created something without totally understanding what the repercussions were going to be. Yeah. And the repercussions were that um, I I built something that I couldn't exactly continue to to I built a platform that I couldn't use essentially, yeah. and I didn't realize that at the time because you know a lot of what we do is we is we is we is we leap and then we look mm-hmm. as artists you know and and for me I think it's important that like um, that there are a lot of gambles and risks that are taken in in my practice i think that is invigorating i think that is what people want to see they want to see um they want to see the possibility of failure that 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 when there's that when there's that um that risk factor it makes it more interesting for everybody you're doing it you know without the net it's always like when you go to the circus you know doing the you know jesus someone could die here yeah i'm gonna i want to watch that um and so that was just a risk that that I took, and <laughs> you know that ended up, um, um, you know that I it took it took a while to sort of like come back from that for people it's, to recalibrate their expectations of what you're going to do, right? Yeah, I mean, I think how it works in the art world is that it's not even a recalibration; it's they forget and then they are introduced, reintroduced, right. and that's happened to me a couple times in the New York art world. Is that you know I've been I've done one thing maybe it doesn't work out or yeah. you realize it's the wrong direction. You have to take a pedal, your foot off the pedal. And then people, it takes them maybe a year or two to forget. Right. And then you just reintroduce yourself. So it is, people really like, um, I'm, it's in, in a way it's nice to see there's like, there's like a two to four year, like lapse turnaround time where you can just sort of like disappear and then come back and yeah. do something new. So it's kind of like that with pop culture too. I think yeah. maybe that time frame is just our, is directly proportional to our amount of information and saturation. So I'm sure that's getting quicker and quicker. Absolutely. Like if you yeah. did something like what you did in the sixties, right. right? I mean, you would have been defined by that for the All rest by, of your life, right, and right. no one else would ever think you could do anything. Right. And now it's like, what? Oh, that happened. Oh yeah, right. Right. I remember talking to Rob Pruitt about this exact thing. Oh yeah, he, remember his? He, uh, <laughs> he worked with his partner, and they did a show, I think, called The Jacksons. And they're two white men, and they yeah. made this show about about like black America, and it was just a disaster, yeah. like really, really poorly reviewed. And everybody talked about, um, I mean, they, yeah, they got they got slaughtered. And it and it took took him. I mean, that was the end. That was the end. That was a career ending show for him. Mm-hmm. And I think he it took I can't remember the amount of time five, six, eight years, and then he came back with the cocaine buffet. Right. And that, he reintroduced himself and all of a sudden he was this new artist. But that was, you know, I remember 
him him describing this whole process of like making this body of work and it, it being career ending for him. Mm-hmm. And I mean, mine wasn't mine wasn't like that. Mine wasn't bad. I mean, it was bad in some people's eyes, but it was just that I couldn't I couldn't follow through with that. Yeah, it just I didn't have any. I was I wasn't able I was unable to keep that up. Um, for him though, it was it was that it was really poorly received and maybe rightfully so but uh you know he he did have to take some time off and then and then come back so. yeah well so he I didn't he didn't exactly come back with you know in like a lamb <laughs> with the cocaine show right kind of like right. another like hey remember me right i'm right. back <laughs> right yeah yeah he did i mean it, yeah he's still you know uh provocateur yeah. But, yeah, I thought you were going to say the fallout from your whole thing was that uh, no more studio visits. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Swipes. <laughs> no you got you had to be pretty good at it if you did that many and you didn't get busted. Well, there was okay. So one of the, <laughs> one of the things that disappointed me about that whole show was that it had always got there was a couple layers of it, and the second layer was the thing that I was maybe more interested in than the first layer. The first layer was that um, first first layer talked about appropriation and theft, and that's something that's plagued the art world for three thousand years. Yeah. Um, and so that was that was where the f- that was the first layer of conversation. That was the one that was the most um, uh, let me th- let me think of the right word. That was the one that. Um, was the most attention grabbing. Right. Artist steals 80 works of art and yeah. shows them. Um, the next layer for me was the one that I thought was really interesting. And, and nobody ever, nobody ever got there because we, they were, everybody just talked about that, that sort of first layer. The second layer was that I never stole anything at all. Actually, it was sort of based on this idea of the panopticon mm-hmm. where you have this, um, exclusive group of people who believe that they know the whole truth and that everybody below them doesn't. So what was happening is that when I would go for a studio visit, I would explain what I was doing to the artist. I would say, listen, I'm doing the show, all these studio visits. Um, I'm stealing artwork from artists. But because me and you are close and I know you and I like your work a lot. I want you to give me your work. We're going to walk around your studio and talk about what it would be that I would steal from you if we were actually doing this, mm-hmm. you know. And we would pick out like the perfect thing that represented them in this sort of like peripheral way. And that would be the conversation. And I'd say, "Listen, there's only 10 people that I'm actually just taking work from." Or you know or that are giving me work. Everybody else, I'm stealing it from. And you know a lot of these people. You can't say anything mm-hmm. to anybody. Even people come to you and they and they say, you know, did you have a studio visit with Adam? You just say, yeah, went fine. Who knows? You can't tell anybody. Even the gallery and the gallery actually didn't know. The yeah. gallery, the gallery had no idea. The gallery thought that I was stealing everything. So, I did this for every single studio visit I went to. So instead of stealing from people, I was actually lying to them. Mm-hmm. And everybody believed that they were part of this small group of people 
that that under that knew about what the concept was, and that everybody else was getting work stolen from them. And when I did, for instance, the New York Times came with me. They came to Aaron Williams' studio. That morning, I went to a studio and we, we rehearsed the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And before we went on the studio visit, I met um, the reporter, and we talked about how this was going to work. And I told her that we were telling Aaron that uh, you would you were that she was coming with me to talk about what it is that happens on a studio visit for a show. And um, so there was a lot of lying. I lied to everybody. Um, and so basically we, I constructed this panopticon where um, you are controlling this large situation from one small vantage point. And for me, that was always this idea of this exclusive group, the panopticon. Those were ideas that I thought were even more interesting than the, this idea of, appropriation and theft um but we never we never really got to that point it always sort of stayed stayed right there so um i think it is less that people think that i am a thief and that i'm maybe just a liar so (laughs) (laughs) so it's not that people wouldn't trust me in their home that i might take something it's that yeah people people know that i'm and I really did. I, I went to every single person that I knew, and I lied directly to their face mm-hmm. and told them, like, me and you are tight. You're on the inside. People love to have the inside information. Don't tell anybody else. But in the end, you know, they, they weren't. Um, but, yeah, it's just everybody now, I mean, it's, it's, like I said, enough time has gone by. Yeah. But it helps cement this idea that I was a pretty shysty dude (laughs) that affect does that affect you think the way people see your work now yeah kind of i mean like this is a yeah like is this is this is a joke who's a joke on yeah i think that's okay for people to be uncomfortable like is this are we making fun of who are we making fun of here am i I the one is this on is this joke on me like what's what's happening here there's a sort of moment where it's like um you know people are it's uncomfortable like who is this is this for real? Like, is this, is he serious? Compounded by, I mean, just humor in art. Right. Just as a jumping point is always people are a little like, wait, right. Is this like funny, funny? Or are we, is it a joke on me? You know what I mean? There's always a little hesitation, I think with humor and art. It's a difficult, sure. It's prickly territory. You know what I mean? Right. And your, your new work, you know, I think is pushes it as much as any of it that you know there's humor right. involved there's right. the relationship to art history and sculpture and right. you know all these things yeah that i mean that and that's that's a place that i like to exist now yeah. and and actually it was frustrating for me for a couple of years because i was having a hard time sort of re- having people recalibrate like we said but now having that in my back pocket and knowing that that's something that i've done i think i enjoy that if people know about that, that 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 could perhaps give them a more unsettling feeling about what I'm what I'm doing now. Like right. what, you know, what is this? Is it is it for real? Like what? Like is this a? You know, they're like they're they start out they're kind of like a like a prank. Like who's a who's a prank on? You know, yeah. is this am I am I the butt of this joke? So, um, of course, I always try to implement or implicate. I'm sorry, myself. In those jokes, I think that's the best way. I do watch a lot of comedy, and I think that's the best way for comedians to really go deep, quick. Yeah, 
is to use themselves. Right. They're never really talking about themselves. But in not pointing their finger at the audience or at a specific member um, and, and talking about themselves, they're able to talk about some really serious and, and, and um, heavy-duty things that right. you would otherwise just say that that's, you know... Um, that's, you'd be bullying essentially. Yeah, to, like you to, can't touch that content. But if you turn it on yourself, you can talk about anything. Almost. Yeah, yeah. If you can, well, if you can somehow, if it can be about you. You can. It can be about. It can be anything. Yeah. You know, and so that's. Uh, I, I try to use that. As much as I can. And hesitation is built into what art is really. I mean, it, art right. is artifice, and right. you know, there's always this kind of idea that you're you're presenting something that's not real, you right. know, and right. what's that connection? Like, what does that mean? Right. You know, and how does that enter the work and how does it relate to the real world? And that's kind of the, you know, the dance that happens every time you, you make some sort of visual thing. Sure. sure. And, um, yeah, it seems like you've got this nice balance of, you, you kind of don't want the viewer to be sure in a way ever about anything like if, if right. things become too defined right it locks it in place right. you know and if there's wiggle room there but it's not spelled out i think talking about earlier you said that you wanted to migrate from you know explaining the thing like so right. where where the piece tells you something right to the viewer coming up and sort of having a an experience with right. it right and um those are two totally different things you know yeah um I think you're doing it. Good. <laughs> I was thinking of, you know, that early table piece too, the tilt piece that right. you go in. Right. It's almost like a pop, like a contemporary version of something like Stella. Right. Of putting the viewer in this. Right. Play, or like Terrell. Right. You know, right. have you ever been to the mattress factory? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, you kind of go in there and, right. and it happens. You right. Know, and yeah, it's, it's, it's It manipulates the viewer, right. but then it becomes experiential. But then at the end of it, you walk out and you're like, what the hell was that experience? Right. <laughs> yeah, it can be great. It can be great. And it can be, or, or it doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's more about, um, it's almost like some, like a, like a, a keto mm-hmm. where you're using other people's energy yeah. and directing that, you know, instead of using your own. So you're, so you're taking the viewer, taking everything that they can bring into it. And you're and you're having them put put you know use 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 that and so they don't have to bring anything if they don't want to mm-hmm. um, or maybe they just you know want to bring their wallet that's fine too yeah but you know they can they can they can bring a lot into it and that's great that's like uh, um, and a lot of it's, it's something that you could have never controlled or expected or I I did a piece um, at, at the a um, museum space in Colorado and a woman wrote me an, an email and just let me know that she had um, had gone through some trauma and that she frequented the museum a lot and that being in this more immersive work that I had created was something that gave her um, um, that, that, that she felt good when she was, was there mm-hmm and it gave her some peace, I guess. And, it, you know, it wasn't my intention, really. But just to receive that note from her, uh, it was, you know, it was an ama- kind of an amazing sort of thing. So, yeah. Um, 
you know that's like a, a perk i mean you know that you're gonna get the people who are like i just don't understand this crap or like this is well i love that too yeah yeah, yeah i love you, that too. you're gonna get the spectrum yeah. of actually that's right. probably the sign of good work yeah yeah you know yeah. to where when you get po- those polarized. visceral reactions sure, sure. not the like oh yeah it's nice yeah i mean uh, you know like my my work gets that a lot now and uh, you know sometimes it's people not quite understanding what's happening in terms of like uh, especially now the way that a lot of work is seen is quickly it'll be on Instagram or something it's yeah. like what the f- you know what is this just balloons or is a pool float right um, and so maybe maybe people aren't understanding that it's that's you know resin and painted and this and that but mm-hmm. but that's but that's too too that's great I, I sort of enjoy I, I enjoy all of that and and a lot of that has been um, you know with any sort of negative criticism that you receive it's either valid and you should listen to it or it's not valid and then you don't have to worry about it yeah so i always listen and pay attention because it's either one of those two things either they know what they're talking about mm-hmm. and you should do something about it or they don't know what they're talking about and then you don't have to worry about it right so um but yeah the more the more input you are getting positive or negative you know and and negative negative input is always sort of more useful in a way right positive input is great and it feels good but like in terms of growth like i'll call you in a second (laughs) (laughs) in terms of um in terms of growth yeah negative negative feedback is always like the most helpful really right so yeah um here's a left field question what um music do you think your work looks like or sounds like Oh man, what music? Boy, I that's like, a hard one. I know. I I mean, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna say some stuff here, and then I'm gonna, and then I'm gonna think about it later on tonight. You're gonna like, send oh, me a message, like, can you strike what, that? Yeah. Why did I say that? We can just substitute in, like, you know, Johann Sebastian Bach for, <laughs> <laughs> for whatever. I think I think the the first band that came to mind right now is maybe like the Velvet Underground or mm-hmm. something like that. So it's it's um, um I'm not gonna even say why. Yeah, I'll say maybe the Velvet Underground. That sounds good. That sound all right? Yeah, I mean I, I think when I see your work, it's like slightly related to Andy Warhol in a way. It has that yeah. foundation and like it's pop, pop, but but it's also like even though it's sort of unenjoyable to listen to sometimes, it has this sort of like, maybe they don't know how to play their instruments or they don't know how to sing, but also I really like some of those songs. Yeah. Like they actually, they actually sound good. Yeah. They kind of resonate, you know, and they get stuck in your head. Yeah. But there, that is always such an interesting, I mean, I, I'm from Pittsburgh, so I have a big war hall. Right. Kind of like historical relationship in my life. And, the museum you know there's always this tie-in with the velvet underground and it's right. a really interesting partnership right because the music is is kind of so enigmatic quirky and singular right, I think. right. there's no one like the velvet underground right right but warhol's work was all about looking like everything i mean he wanted the mirror society right it's right pretty compelling like uh you know grouping of the two yeah i mean he i think he understood uh what a lot of successful people understand is that in order to help be successful oftentimes it is good to surround yourself with disparate and hyper intelligent groups of people yeah whether you want to listen to what they have to say or not 
right. you know, a lot of like leaders do the same thing. Yeah. Surround themselves with people with that are that are eccentric and have sort of wild opinions and views and it's great. You can listen to them and you can listen to what they have to say or or not. And a lot of you know um a lot of American presidents have done that. Yeah. I mean, look at, you know, Kennedy or Obama or even Trump surrounds himself with all kinds of bizarre people. And uh, (laughs) maybe he's not a great example, but, you know. I I get um, it. I mean, we kind of do it in the studio, right? You'll you'll read books or listen to, you want to surround Right, your sort of mental yeah. You put as space much with pressure pressure cooker as good possible. stuff, you know. Yeah, I, the older I get, the more I do it. You know, it's like sure. the books and the other work and reading deep about you know artists or whatever right. it is. I feel like I know it. It's it's almost like oh yeah, I'm getting to be right. Like at a certain age, my dad just started reading history books like a right. fiend. Right, you right. know, like out of the blue you know and now i get it i'm like oh yeah you just get to an age where you like you just want to know stuff and like get opinions right right you know i think it just diversifies your whole existence in a way yeah absolutely i mean um you know i try to put as much information in there as you know i went carolyn and i went to see the lipazon stallions and then you know same place we went back to see um Monster Jam, Monster mm-hmm. Trucks. I took Sunday actually. Nice, but yeah, all of that stuff. It all like goes in somewhere and comes yeah. out. Comes out eventually. Yeah. yeah, you can find stuff in there. Definitely. Yeah, my son went through a NASCAR f- phase. You know, we went through that, and we would go to the Poconos and watch those races. And we went. We went to one this summer. It was incredible. It's I mean, visceral, I like. Man. It's I fundamentally disagree with everything happening. <laughs> okay, just the whole idea, <laughs> right? Of driving around in circles, destroying. Just, just like using resources, I just like the whole thing to me is stupid. Yeah, I grew up in a bike store. This idea that like we can we can commute without you know using the Earth's resources. Just everything about NASCAR or any sort of racing, I'm fundamentally sort of against. And I thought it was amazing. Like I can't yeah. wait to go back. It's so so cool. Nothing like it. Yeah. And the, the crazy thing for me was. I thought it was going to be this, like, you know, banjos and wild, like, crazy. Everyone's right. silent. They put in these, because right. it's too loud. Right. Everyone's wearing the blocking headphones. It's right. almost like zen. Like, everyone's just sitting there. Yeah, because what you're watching is amazing. Yeah. You it's, smell it. You feel it when they come oh, it's by. Incredi- it's incredible. Yeah. It's like incredible. art. You know, people could say to us, like, you're just making crap. Right. Like, you know, this is not right. sustainable. It's right. not good for the environment. Right. You're yeah, just you're adding right. crap right. to the world. Yeah. It's like, you know, but it kind of gives, hopefully it gives people an experience where they reflect on the world in a way that opens their mind up to thinking in ways that may help the world. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's altruistic, I guess. Or, it could be a stretch for NASCAR, but, you know, I think it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is, it's like, it's so cool. I mean, they go really fast. It's, they just it's go 200, so fast. 200 they go miles so, per hour. They go so fast. <laughs> They're just going so fast. They're just like, wow. Maybe that's the kid in us. You know, you just love to see a car go really fast. Maybe, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. I, but, I, I, yeah, I, I, as, I, in a, as, a, as a human, I mean, Carolyn went with mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And we were both like, wow, they're going so fast. Yeah. They really, I mean, it's like, I can't believe they're going that fast. Yeah, my wife went. She would never, you know, think about right. NASCAR. And, you know, you smell that rubber burning. And you're like, holy smokes, like this is pretty right. compelling, you know? 
Yeah, it's great. It's, <laughs> it's great, but I disagree with all of it, just in every, right. and on every level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I had a great time. But it was great. I'm going back. I can't wait. Yeah, we went out in Montana. I just like oh, next. Man. Yeah, we're gonna, for sure. Like so, I, I won't miss an opportunity to go see anything like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so you have a lot going on, right? You were just you just had a solo booth, right? Uh, no, I had. Or you I had. had I had a solo show. A solo show. Yeah. And then right. um, I was supposed to have a work go down. One of the problems with a lot of the work that I do now is that um, I cook up these ideas and then, uh, you know, I, I talk with some fabricators that help me out now and we figure out if it's possible. And most of the time the answer is maybe. And then I tell the gallery, like, yeah, we're doing the piece. It's going to be great. Fabricators all the while have told me, like, hey, there is like a 50% chance that this is actually <laughs> right. going to work. And uh, we get away with it a lot of times, but then some of the times we don't. Yeah. So anyway, I had this like, beautiful piece that we were going to make from Miami, and uh, it, it, it didn't work. It just didn't work. So I did, <laughs> I did. I had like two days before the fair, I had to call them up and be like, hey. It's not happening. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's a not, bummer. Yeah, it was a bummer. But they, I mean, um, it was it was okay. We had enough inertia from from uh, the show that it like ended up being fine. Yeah. But yeah, it's. I mean, this is one of the things. It's like, uh, you know, the first thought that I had that the fabricator called me up and go, "Hey, this is a disaster." You know, the first thought that I always have is like, "Ah, shit!" Like that sucks. Yeah. The second thought is that if basically all your ideas are working out, then you're definitely not pushing hard enough. Right. The, the fact that ideas are failing, and let's say we have like a 20 to 30% failure rate, that's great. That means that we have enough risk in the equation to keep things interesting, that Ambition. we're pushing hard enough. Yeah. Ambition's all, up to snuff. All of that, yeah. yeah. That's like a good, it's actually a good, healthy sign of a practice that, that you know is is properly invigorated and sort of is it has potential for growth mm -hmm. so that's the that's the mindset that i try to be in about these sort of projects where i hemorrhage money and time and get right. nothing so <laughs> i have to remember that this is this was a step forward although it seems like a giant step backwards right so well if, if failing is a sign of doing well and success i'm doing great <laughs> it is. It is, though. It is. I mean, yeah. it's this idea of failing. And a lot of companies now are looking for people who have a history of failure because it means that they're, um, you know, the interface between success and failure is is a rich environment. Yeah. And it's one that is inhabited by really creative, risk-taking individuals. And if you're looking for that type of thing, which I think we are in the art world, that that's what you want. You want people who are failing left and right. Yeah. Because when they, when one of these things actually works, it's going to be, it's going to be something new. It's like, uh, I can't help but think of Tesla, you know? Sure. They had some bumps in rows, but they're, they're failing on some things, but then they make this huge stride in like a development of some sort of engineering, you know? Right, right. Yeah, you got to take those risks. Yeah. There's a test, a Tesla in satellite around the, around the earth. Yeah. They're listening now probably. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's exactly exactly that, and this is what's happening with a lot of tech. Yeah. You know, is that they're looking for, they're looking for innovation, and and innovation and failure go hand in hand yeah. together because it, without failure, there isn't an innovation. So, yeah, playing it safe doesn't really get you to the next level. Yeah, although like it does suck two days before the fair 
calling right. up the gallery and letting them know that you will not be participating. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry guys. <laughs> but, but that if, could they pay for production anyway? <laughs> Cause I owe these guys some money. Yeah. This is never a great conversation. Yeah. So, but well, yeah, it all comes out in the wash, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. One way or the other. Yeah. Life is yeah, a yeah, balance. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. But that's, you know, that's an important, like sort of part of the process now. Definitely. So just, and you know, trying new things. So, Anyway, I th- we're going to try to make this piece again. Nice. Anyway, so. Cool. Yeah. Well, where can people see your work? I mean, you do social media, so you share things on there. I'm on Instagram. updates. Yeah, Adam Parker Smith mm-hmm. on Instagram. And I'm represented by, um, you know, a, a, a few different galleries. Mm-hmm. Uh, my main gallery is The Hole mm-hmm. right now in, in New York. And um, I'm represented in, in uh, Guadalajara by Curio Gallery. Um, I work with Evergold Projects sometimes in San Francisco, mm-hmm. um, and I've done some. Uh, I just did a project with the Louis Buell Gallery in Detroit, nice. and uh, we may be possibly doing another edition um, this this upcoming year. Um, so yeah, those are the main main places now. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Thanks for having me over. Awesome. Thanks for good coming. To talk. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks. <laughs> Sound and Vision listeners, as we approach our 200th episode, and when I say we, I mean me, because basically I record, edit, produce, line up, schedule, promote, do everything myself, so I am about to celebrate the 200th episode of the podcast with all my great guests, and I'm just asking that you listeners maybe share a photo or a link or spread the word, tell a friend. Uh, leave a review on iTunes, but basically help spread the word about the podcast. I mean, art and podcasts, it's like a very specific audience, and um, it's been spreading to more and more of those who, who love to hear artists talk about their work and their life, so I'm super thankful for that, and the best way to get the word out about the podcast is by people like you who tell a friend or you know share a link to it, so... For the 200th episode, I'm hoping that you all can share a little bit about Sound and Vision. Um, I do want to give credit to a couple people who have helped out with the podcast. Uh, Emily Burns is the um, graphic designer and artist who came up with the logo and helps out with some of the imagery for the podcast. And also all the musicians who've lent some sounds, like what you're hearing now, Evan Marion's work, and um, Jacob Tutu and Lullatone and Michael Lovett who did the intro and um, check out his stuff which is Nazca Lines and he also plays in Metronomy so thanks to all the musicians and thanks to Golden Paint and the New York Studio School for sponsoring the podcast and thanks to all you listeners for helping spread the word and being supportive Um, this is something that I do that's just fun I do it just to talk to artists and share their stories with you all so it's, it's really great when I get all the feedback from you in uh, social media and messages and emails about the podcast. Many thanks. Looking forward to 200 more. We've got some great guests coming up leading up to 200th episode. Thanks for your support. <laughs>